0: Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Mmm, food and music. Two great tastes that taste great together. And both have been creative passions at the center of Roger Mooking's life.
1: I, I realized that where music was a vessel to be able to express emotion, thoughts, ideas in a way that brought the world together universally, Food could also do that, it has a unique capacity to do that as well in culture.
0: I first met Roger Mooking when he was a member of Bass's Bass, and I worked at Warner Music Canada. Bass's Bass was the hot independent hip hop group in the country at the time, and they were being courted by all the major labels. We didn't have a chance to sign the band, but they did go on to enjoy a successful run of records before eventually splitting up, with each member of the trio following an alternative path. I eventually worked on a music project with Roger, but by then, he had already become a star and a celebrity chef on the Food Network. The two of us sat down recently for a conversation about his career and the intersection of food and music in his life.
1: Ah, uh, Well, you know, when I was about three years old, Um, You know, your parents or your aunts and uncles, little bug kids, what are you going to be when you grow up? So when I was three years old, I remember my aunt asking me, what are you going to be when you grow up? And without flinching, I said, I'm going to be a chef, right? And in context of this is like her father, which is also my grandfather on that side of the family, my dad's side of the family. Um, came from Guangdong province in China. After a long story, ended up in Trinidad. And then after a longer story, opened restaurants, bakeries and stuff, right? So I'm now the third generation food and beverage person in my family. So when I answered that I was going to be a chef, the context was well known in, in that household. She's like, are you sure you know what this is like? It's no joke, <laughs> you know? And I was just always really uh, committed to it. And, and I also realized that I liked food. You know, food was more than just a passing fancy for me for a very early age. And I learned that the fastest way to get what I wanted in my mouth was to learn how to cook it. So I just started to learn how to cook it as soon as I could.
0: So, look, I'm not sure how many people that are going to listen to this know, but I'm sure plenty do, that, you know, you had a music career as well. And I'm just wondering where the intersection happened. How did... What, did you go from cooking to music and then back to cooking did you how what happened here
1: uh so what happened basically is you know I grew up in a household where there was always food and music you know um like I said my father come from a generation of being around restaurants and bakeries and my grandfather owned a grocery store as well in the in the country so um they came up in the food industry and it would, born in Trinidad, right? And then I was born in Trinidad and they were born in Trinidad. And Trinidad is like very musical culture. You know, we we had leftover oil bins and we invented the steel pan. You know, some people had leftover oil bins and in Jamaica, they made jerk pits, right? But We made music out of the oil pans, right? So it's very musical culture. So I grew up in a household. My dad was an avid collector of records. So I grew up hearing like Roberta Flack, Nana Moscuri, um, uh, Jose Feliciano, Santana, um, The Beatles, uh, Calypso music. And then my brother was a DJ when we moved to Edmonton. My brother started DJing and then, you know, hip hop kind of broke out and was listening to Grandmaster Flash and Nucleus and the Roxanne Battles. And, you know, then I started diving myself and N.W.A., Ice Cube Public Enemy, um, Ice T, all those things. So I kind of grew up in a household where we would would be eating breakfast, talking about dinner. But in the background, it was always just amazing music playing like they always had just great records playing and mad cassette mixtapes and vinyl. And we just love music. Right and throwing parties and just be i, I would be like the 10 year old kid on the dance floor with all the adults just love music you know and then to go to the go to the buffet table <laughs> right right so those worlds always intersect for me but professionally i guess um when i was around 15 16 i started like rapping and and working in restaurants so i would take all of my money from working in the restaurants and go to like the local music store with my group, and we go rent a bunch of equipment like Alesis sequencers and mixers, microphones. We'd set up like a blankets in in the basement and create like vocal booths, and we would just make beats and make records, you know. And those records turned out to be like Juno nominated records coming out of the basement in my parents and my partner's basement in Edmonton. Um, we won. CMVA awards off of those records in the basement like that. and But I was still working in and out of restaurants to, to finance that stuff with the group, right? So I always had this world where I was intersecting with um, music and food and then the music really just took off and then the bass, bass thing happened, that took off and all that crazy. And um, then it's like, oh, there's the music industry. As you know, you go up in the music industry, it is. It's a dirty business, my brother, <laughs> right? So I was like, I-, I don't like this business. I like to make stuff, but I don't like this business. I'm out of this business, right? So then I went to cooking school, you know, with my Juno and tow and all that. I uh, went to cooking school. I worked in restaurants full-time while I was in cooking school and did that whole thing, came out of that, worked in hotels, catering companies, restaurants, um, and then started opening my own restaurants. And and but I was still making records people would ask me to do the odd like scoring this thing for a movie or like come jump on this record and so I was always doing that stuff and making records always still and then um you know tv started cracking along with the restaurants and the music making and you know at that time I was putting out records with Warner still so just just all these worlds just kind of intersected, but it just started really naturally that I like, you know, working in the restaurants. I was interested and I would take that money and make records, you know, so, so they, they always kind of been in tandem professionally. Yeah.
0: So at 15, what were you doing in the restaurants?
1: I got, um, funny enough, I was doing a summer job with a, a family friend. They were a contractor, right? and he didn't know what my capacity was so he's like okay yo go demo this kitchen so he had me like taking the tiles off the wall in the kitchen right after about an hour he's like he's like man you suck at this but I just built this restaurant let me go take you to this restaurant so he took me in the back door of this restaurant and he's like yo this is what a restaurant is like you know and so I'm like okay it's cool it's cool and, after a while, I just started hanging around there, and then I would help out. Next thing you know, I had a job in the restaurant. <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs> but what, what were you doing in the restaurant?
1: Oh, I was, a, I was the line cook. I started oh. out as a breakfast line cook, man. It was, and I got really good. You know, like At a certain point, the manager realized that I could do the whole breakfast by myself. So I would do, come in like 5.30 in the morning, set up the whole breakfast line, do the whole, it's like a Denny's type of thing. It's Albert's restaurant in Alberta, which is like Denny's, right? And then we would, it it was a truck stop like, it was just off the highway, so it ended up being effectively like a truck stop for all the truckers. So, man, we would get 200 people. Like, <laughs> go, and I'd be like banging out breakfast just by myself, you know? Like, boop, 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 boop. The wheel is jammed, and then clear the wheel and then load the wheel again, and jam, and I was breakfast cooking, doing the whole line. And yeah, so I started out as like making omelets and pancakes and stuff like that. And uh, when I left that job, they had to hire three people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As a young as a young kid doing that kind of thing, what was it like? What did you feel the passion?
1: Yeah, so you know, I was in the kitchen and like it was like the adrenaline rush of of being coming off a stage at a stadium. You know, it was like mad young. I got so much testosterone hormones running through my body, so much energy, and it would just be so dynamic. Your mind is like 10 steps ahead, but you're still active doing what you're doing now. And it's just your brain is flexing like this. And you do an eight hour, 10 hour, 12 hour shift like that. You are keyed up. it takes take you hours to, to come down, to go to sleep again. Right. Or just do whatever you got to do. Um, so yeah, I really like the rush of it, but you know, it's very, it's very, very physically demanding. It's like, uh, doing construction work, you know, or like being a wrestler.
0: Were you doing, were you doing anything, Unique at the time with regards to making the breakfast, or were you just cracking eggs and, and putting, putting uh, bacon on the grill and stuff like that? Or were you, were you bringing anything, any of your Trinidadian roots to what you were making at all?
1: No oh, man, I was like a fifteen year old Lion Cook making four twenty five an hour. There was a prescribed menu. I had to bang out the menu. You know, it's like you go to Smitty's. You don't have the the Lion Cook's Trinidadian mother's recipe coming out the Smitty's <laughs> Smitty's menu, right? It is yeah. you do what you gotta do, what you've been told, right?
0: You know, while you were uh winning your Juno's, while you know, you were putting together these acts, during that time, did you always have it in your mind that you were, you know Going to continue to try to become a professional chef
1: at that time? Like, I like to cook just for fun. You know, I was basically kind of homeless in that era, though, too. Right? I was living on my aunt's couch, I was living between Chin's mother's basement. Um, you know, just real music, music life. If I wasn't on the tour bus, I was at some girl's couch, Chin's couch, my aunt's couch. Like, that was basically, I didn't have an apartment for a long time, right? Yeah. So I didn't really have the infrastructure to be able to just like cook like that, you know, but I always love cooking. So I guess maybe somehow I was in the back of my head and I love when we went out to restaurants and the record company would take us out to nice restaurants and I, I could appreciate it different. <laughs> yeah.
0: So at what point did you decide that you were going to go to, uh, go to cooking school and where did you go to cooking school?
1: Um, I went to George Brown College. I took culinary management. It was maybe 1999 or something like that. I was like, yo, I'm gonna go do this cooking, man. Like, I'm good at cooking. And, And I always was really passionate about it, interested about it. At that time, I was just like, would be like a weekend warrior on the grill and stuff like that for fun. And so I was like, yo, let me really dive into this. You know, I think this is, this is a thing. And this is before like food network was popping off and stuff like that even too. Right.
0: Did you have in your mind what it was that you wanted, wanted to focus your cooking on. was it going did you have an idea of doing a fusion or was it something like is is, is this stuff you learn in sc- cooking school I mean I just don't actually know what you learn in cooking school apart from you know how to use your knives and and what spices go together
1: yeah you don't even really learn necessarily what spices go together you know um you know there's an industry around cooking so they prepare you for the industry and at that time the industry was get a degree get your seal and go work in a hotel because it's got better pay than the restaurants and they got benefits. Like that was kind of the mo. That was the model of the cooking school mode at that time. There was no food trucks. There was none of this like global restaurants. You remember back in like the late nineties, early, early two thousands, you go to a restaurant. It was like the keg, or, you know, they just, there, there wasn't like die low back then. There wasn't like pizza libretto back then. You, you know what I mean? Like there was a yeah. few restaurants and it was, um they had like uh, three salads, chef salad, house salad, Greek salad, and you get a chicken with some herbs and asparagus. That was restaurants back in the late nineties, early two thousands, for the most part, right. Or a steakhouse, right. Mm-hmm. So it was a very different thing. So, but I did realize that there was more that I didn't know about cooking in the industry than what I did know. And so I was like, okay, well, let me see what this, this school stuff has to test to show me, you know what I mean? Um, so, you know, that, that kind of allows you the gateway to get the step into being able to go into a hotel and in catering companies, but you come out of cooking school, you're essentially a glorified dishwasher.
0: I understand. You know, one thing that I'm curious about, though, is when you're in cooking school, I'm not sure how many people would be in a class, but can you, do you, I mean, certainly looking back now, can you identify the people that had skills versus the people that were, you know, just on the next step to wherever it was, they were going to go somewhere else in the world?
1: Yeah, for sure. There was maybe three or four of us in my class that were like, oh, yo, they, they got it they got it or you know they would finish like and be cl- cleaned up and washed all their dishes and s- some people are still chopping vegetables you know what I mean and it mm-hmm. looks good things good you know what I mean um so you know there's a few of us like that in the class um I think of the people that graduated in my class uh you know the first year half the people drop off and the second year um by the time we graduated um Of the people still in the industry from my graduating class, I I know of three, including me. Wow.
0: And that's out of how many people, do you figure?
1: In my entire class? I don't know. In my class specifically, there's maybe 40, but there was several of my classes, right? So maybe a couple hundred, you
0: know? Okay. So you graduate and then the first thing is going into hotels?
1: Oh, what did I do when I graduated? So when I was in school, I worked full time at this restaurant called Vervaine on Queen Street East at that time. Queen and Pape area, Queen of Carlaw kind of area, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I was working full time and going to school full time. So I would get up five in the morning, go to school class for six, leave there, come to work for three, work till about 11 midnight and repeat. I did that for two years, Mm -hmm. no days off basically, right? Um, So... When I came out of of cooking school, I went uh, got a, got another job, and then I ended up in a hotel. So I was doing hotel for a minute, and hotel was like, okay, whatever. And then I did that for a while, and then the people who had opened Vervein were opening another restaurant, and so they came to me and they said, Yo, we know that you work hard, you have good ideas. You'll come be the chef of this other restaurant. So that's how I've got my first executive chef job um, is at this restaurant called Barrio in Queen Street East as well. at like uh, yeah Queen and Pape area.
0: So when they when you say that they told you, you know, you've got good ideas, what kind of ideas were you bringing to the table?
1: Well, they knew me from working in, in Vervain for like a couple of years while I was in cooking school. They just knew that I was just, I was thinking beyond just, you know, being a line cook. I was thinking about, how do you build a business? Asking inquisitive questions. how do you put this together? You know, recipes as well as just operating operations, right? So they're like, okay, well, this guy has like got his head on. And before long, I was like running their brunch shift. And it was a, a fairly complicated like bistro brunch menu. And um, I remember the time I came down, it was me and another guy, and it's a dude named Michael, who was on the line. And breakfast just started, got really crazy it was my first like real shift running the breakfast and I was running the wheel like I was running okay this this is time in five minutes on this boom and they're like who the fuck this kid is just like came out of school like what the hell he's like running the line right and so they're like okay well this kid he's on a different kind of plane with this shit you know what I mean so so they kept that in mind and when they opened Barrio I guess they figured that I, I had the capacity to do it and you know, just my background and how I approach and think about food and culture and, and bringing those worlds together from around the world. They're like, okay, we think there's a fit. Let's, let's give it a shot.
0: So while you're working in these restaurants, and you're basically cooking other people's recipes, are you? Are you coming up with your own recipes at the same time? Are you are you thinking ahead a little bit about what what would a Roger Mooking menu be?
1: Yes and no. I mean, to a certain degree, yeah, I was there to learn and I was really appreciative of all that stuff and a lot of techniques, but always it's like, oh yeah, you know, you're kind of bubbling in the back thinking, oh, I'll do this. Or on the weekend, you practice something and you try to make something, just invent something, you know, create something and it turns into something good. And But you don't even really know what it is. You know, it's like, well, it's not really a Milfoy. It's not really a this. It's not, but it's kind of this in between. And so I just kind of built a world of making dishes that were kind of in between things that still tasted and looked good and were approachable and you could understand, right?
0: When you were going to strike out on your own, is that opening up a restaurant or striking out on the own, your own, building the persona of Roger Mooking, the chef, or are they hand in hand?
1: You know, man, when I went into cooking, I went in with the resolve that I didn't want to be famous for anything ever again. <laughs> I, I went through that in the music industry and it was like... I'm I'm good without it. I've done that. It's cool, you know. I'm I'm good. I just want a very anonymous, simple life. Go to work, cook my food, go home, sleep with my wife, and just do it again. You know. As it turned out, where I started to build that was at Barrio, that job um, where I was the f- first executive chef that I had. Um, and as it turned out, it was around the corner from where Food Network used to produce television shows. And the, the main executives for the network used to come in like three, four times a week. Cause at that time they were launching the channel and they were working just relentlessly, you know, just, and so they weren't about to be going home and cooking every day. So they would just come to the restaurant and eat. And I got to know them after a while. I didn't know who they were. I just knew them as Holly and Tanya. Um, and about a year later they said, Hey, you know, Roger, we actually work for the food network and we work around the corner and, we come here all the time you're a personable dude and your food is good you know we're here all the time so you know we're trying to do some shows why don't you come and try some shows and i was like again i resolved to just i just want an anonymous life my brother you know <laughs> and I so i reluctantly went and it just out of courtesy to them like reluctantly went and did these like little audition things and you know um long story short that just after a few years Later, I opened uh, my own restaurant and they showed up in the dining room again. And there they were. They're like, oh, I'm glad. I'm glad that stuff didn't work out before because um, we do it different now. I'm like, good, because back then it was bad. I wasn't having nothing nothing to do with it, you know. And so we sat down again and now it was much more of a collaborative conversation. And my mind was more prepared to to decide that if I'm going to go down this road, I'd already kind of started building a, a persona as a chef nationally, you know, if I'm going to go down that road, I want to be able to control the environment, right? Because with the music industry, they chew you up and spit you out, you know, right? So if I'm going to be chewing up and spitting out in the in the food world, I, I at least want it on my own conscience, right? So I said, look, I'll I'll go down this road, but I want to I want to be part of the creative voice. I want to have a voice at the producer's table and decision-making. And so we figured out a way to do that. And we launched this show, Everyday Exotic. And that started my TV food career as well, right?
0: So you you said that um, you were already building a national reputation of sorts. How did that happen?
1: I opened this, you know, this barrio restaurant. There's magazines and stuff poking around and doing our little articles here and there. Then I opened this bigger restaurant, and um, when we opened that restaurant, our launch party was a Toronto Film Fest party for Vince Vaughn. And as mm-hmm. it turns out, we ended up on the cover of Hello! Magazine because Vince Vaughn was coming out the party with another girl, and he was supposed to be dating like Jennifer Aniston at the time or something like that. <laughs> Some craziness like that. So our restaurant got splashed all over the world, you know? Um, And so people are like, what's this restaurant? And so I I started to, that kind of helped kind of catapult the next stages of things. And then just more press poking around and just building like that. And the show started popping off and I released Soul Food. That was my album with Coalition Warner Mm -hmm. at the same time as launching Everyday Exotic, my first show. And so all that stuff was happening simultaneously, you know. So
0: how many shows, how many shows have you Done so far. I mean, there was Everyday Exotica, there's Man versus Fire, right?
1: No, Everyday Exotic was the first yeah. one. Uh, we yeah. started that in Canada, then sold that around the world to like a bunch of countries. Mm-hmm. Um, then I did like stuff like Iron Chef, Chopped. Uh, that kind of stuff and then i started working with america and then we did this show called heat seekers with our own sanchez mm-hmm. and then i did some more chopped and then chopped canada and then best thing i ever ate and all these like kind of specials and guest appearances kind of things um and then we launched uh, manfire food and we just wrapped up season nine of manfire food right so um it's been a bunch of different shows over the years when you go
0: to open up your own restaurant this is the time that you get to put together a menu that is all you so do you have a concept in mind of what it is you want it to be and what kind of food is going to be on the menu from you know from starters through to dessert
1: well i was practicing all that stuff at barrio where i was my first job as an executive chef right so Mm -hmm. And really, that's where I formulated my my style. I guess you could say. You know what I mean. Um... And my whole thing was, I just like to cook good food. I'm Trinidadian, so I grew up eating West Indian food and cooking West Indian food. My grandfather's from China, so I learned how to cook a lot of Chinese cuisine growing up and being around a lot of that. Um, I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, so there's a heavy Ukrainian influence. So, you know, I'd come home, my mother would have some Ukrainian baba in the kitchen showing her how to make padeha and hulup chi and all this kind of stuff. So I learned all of that kind of stuff. Uh, going through restaurants, I learned a whole bunch of stuff. So I would make dishes that kind of mashed up a whole bunch of stuff. And that just tasted good. They look simple, tasted good, were approachable, and were tasty, you know. So I kind of started that all out at Barrio. And that was the first crack at doing that. And and that's really what it was, was I, I realized that where music was a vessel to be able to express emotion, thoughts, ideas, in a way that brought the world together universally. Food could also do that. It has a unique capacity to do that as well in culture. So I was always used, food has always just been a tool to express a greater thought. You know, is mashing up cultures, bringing, bringing people and cultures together through food. You know, and then bringing them all at the table, everybody from different parts of the world together at the table because they see their food represented at the table in a small way. So then they approach it and then all of a sudden they're sitting next to like this Chinese person, this black person. This, and then that was the environment. Right. And um, so food was always the tool to tell that story. And so that was that's always been and that still is my, my mission to this day.
0: Well, I wanted de- I wanted to delve into um, the creativity of of creating a dish. Um, you know, if we can go, maybe you know, walk through, you know, what would you consider a signature dish for you?
1: Over my career, there's several, but I mean, right now we do this dish, uh, twist fried chicken at Twist. I have a restaurant at Pearson International Airport, mm-hmm. and we do this twist fried chicken, and it's <clears throat> it really fuses like five, six different cultures and techniques of of fried chicken.
0: Let's start with the idea.
1: Uh, okay. So, you know, when you're formulating a menu and in the, the twist menu specifically, for, okay, let me step back. If I open a steakhouse, I can pretty much quantify the demographic of the, the patrons of that steakhouse to a very narrow parameter, right? Mm-hmm. And so I create my steaks and the the, the offerings on that menu. And then you as a marketing person understand that you pinpoint the market and you tell that story to that market very specifically. Right. And, you know, generally the customers who will come and and and, and, and use your establishment will be within this narrow bandwidth. In an airport, it's not like that. In an airport. I have every dietary restriction, every age from one years old to 101 years old with every health condition, every um, like capacity of their stomach, like every variable for feeding a person is coming through the airport. So how do I devise a menu conceptually that will satisfy a broad range of people, but not have 600 items on the menu? Right? Because it still has to be efficient and functional within, you know, thirty five hundred square feet. <laughs> right. There's there's finite form factor, right? Yeah. yeah. So in doing that, you know, I had to kind of create a, a model how I wanted to do that. And we came up with this model um called mix and match menu, right? So the mix and match menu was the concept of you get your main fried chicken, but then you could also add on a this, or this, and a this if you are celiac. But if you're not celiac, you could get this and this and this with it. Or if I'm vegetarian, I don't, I'm not going to have the fried chicken, but I'll have uh, this braised tofu thing, but I can have, uh, I'm on a high starch diet at the same time. So right now, if I'm a bodybuilder, I can add rice to this, I can add potatoes to it, and I can add macaroni and cheese to it. Or if I'm not, I could have sauteed spinach to it and broccolini to it. So it allowed us to have like a very broad capacity of service within a very limited menu framework. So first I start there. Okay. Then as you do that, okay, there's there's tenements on a menu like that, right? I need a chicken dish, I need a beef dish, I like a pork dish, I like an array of vegetable dishes, some starch dishes. And so when I was like, okay, what's the chicken dishes? I want a grilled chicken dish and I want a fried chicken dish because everybody loves some kind of crunchy something, right? And most people who like chicken love fried chicken. So that kind of was the jumping off point. It's like, okay, if I'm gonna make this for chicken consumers, There will be the grilled option for the healthier people and the fried chicken for the debaucherous ones, right? Or the ones who are healthy but want to be debaucherous because they're going on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided it was going to be fried chicken, but how am I going to do the fried chicken? That's really what the question was, right? How do I make it deliver on the brand promise?
0: So how do you do that?
1: Okay, so fried chicken. So I looked at how what are the best fried chicken I had in my life? You know, some of the best fried chicken I had in my life is in the South and in Japan and in Southeast Asia. Right? Really? Okay. Yeah, incredible. They do fried chicken. Gangster, like karage chicken. is fried chicken, right? You go to a Japanese restaurant, it's fried chicken, right? Fried chicken nuggets. So, but there was flavor touch points in that twist. We tra- It's global cuisine- North American comfort food with a global twist—that's the brand, right? Mm-hmm. So, I knew I wanted to do fried chicken. So I knew one of the tenements of it was marinating that chicken in buttermilk. I'll tell you that secret: we marinate that thing in seasoned buttermilk for 24 hours, just like they do in the South. That's what they do. Okay. <clears throat> then in the South, what they do is they dredge it in flour, so often seasoned flour. What we do, and over much trial and error, I came up with a, a mix of three different uh, ingredients that make up our dredge. The Colonel's secret recipe. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 one of the secret parts of it, right? Yeah. And we season the, the the buttermilk with some stuff and soak it 24 hours. Chicken thighs and breasts, so you get a thigh and a breast, right? Yeah. Um, so if you if you're sharing with it, because the menu is also designed to share. You know, if you like the breast and my girlfriend likes the thigh, then we could fight over who gets that. And then you can order your other array of accoutrements to go with whatever your dietary needs are. But anyways, so I I created this dredge again over much trial and error, this dredge of three different ingredients. So those allow me to have it extra crunchy, last extra crunchy for a longer period of time and give it a little extra texture, right? And still protect the chicken and extra protection so the juiciness of the chicken is retained inside of the meat. So when you bite into it, it's super crunchy, it stays super crunchy, but when you bite through it, it's bursting juice, okay? And to the bone, it's seasoned, like it's tasty to the bone, okay? So that's how we do, we fry the chicken like that and we do it to order, you know? And you gotta imagine all of a sudden a flight gets canceled and you have 200 vouchers at your door, Man, people are ordering fried chicken like. But we do it to order. So when the order comes in, we pull it out the marinade. We dredge it and fry it 12 minutes every single time. We have one fryer dedicated to only frying chicken. (laughs) Okay, right? So we do that. But now how do we add the layers of the culture to it, right? So I'm a fan of Japanese togarashi spice mix. So we make our own Japanese togarashi spice mix. So when it comes out and it's still hot and wet, we dash it with the togarashi spice mix. We put that on a plate. Then we take a very Chinese concept of frying herbs on mass. So you go to some some parts of China and what they'll do is they'll have like a stew or some kind of grilled food and they'll take a handful of, of fried herbs, whether it's basil or cilantro or whatever, right? handful of it and they'll pile it on top so you don't even see the food you just see this pile of herbs right and you kind of with go through it and the herbs crack on top of it so it adds crunch and texture and it cracks and as you dive into it you get the fried herb flavor and the crunchiness of that thing with the braised food or you know pork belly whatever it is and you get in and it's like starts to dress it and make uh contribute to the stew of it right so I took that concept and I Fry a few basil leaves and we place that on top of the two pieces of chicken that have been dredged with Togarashi spice mix. Beside that, you get a a vessel of a dip. It's like a lime aioli, yeah, like a lime mayo. So the concept is you break into the chicken, it breaks the basil, the basil cracks onto the chicken, super crunchy. Super tender and moist and juicy on the inside. It has the spice mix of the togarashi on the exterior of that. You dip it in the lime mayo so you get a nice creaminess, but also the zing of the citrus that cuts through all the fat. And then you dip on the broken basil and it kind of sticks to it. So you get this bite. It presents very simple. It's just fried chicken with like some red stuff, dust on it, some basil on top of that, and then a little vessel on the side. It presents very, very simple when you cut into it and you take it, you dip it and you get the basil back on there, the complexity of the flavor is incredible. You get the fried basil, you get the togarashi spice, the crunch on the exterior of the chicken, the super juiciness on the inside that's seasoned down to the bone, the zing of the citrus and the creaminess of the mayo in one bite in a very simple package. So as a cu- customer, you know fried chicken. You've had fried chicken before. You know fried chicken. You like fried chicken. So you're going to get fried chicken, but we're going to give you something that's a little bit unexpected and a new experience around the fried chicken that's like, oh, okay, dang, that's what's up. So we get a lot of customers say, that's the best fried chicken I had in my life, right? Right. But that that's cumulative knowledge of traveling the world and going to the south, going to Japan, going to Southeast Asia, seeing how that's done, growing up in my family and multicultural that we are and and trying to bring all those things together in a very familiar, approachable package.
0: Okay, so this seemed like a good place to end this episode. And that way we can go get something to eat before we continue on. Um, but this isn't where the conversation with Roger ended. Next week, I'll post a bonus episode in which Roger goes into detail about the essentials for your kitchen and how you can easily up your own cooking game. If you want to know more about Roger Mooking now, please visit rogermooking.com and find out about his music, restaurants, television shows, and cookbooks. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you haven't already, please take a moment to follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and new episodes will be delivered to you as soon as they go live. And if you have any friends that might be interested in what we're covering, please let them know that we exist. The Creationist podcast also has Facebook and Instagram pages that you can follow with photos and additional stories about some of our guests. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrand. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. <coughs>